Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. We are finishing up this wonderful chapter. It's been several weeks that we have dissected and and really just consumed God's Word in this one chapter. It's been a couple of months here looking at Jesus and His commissioning of His twelve for a particular mission, preparing them not only for this short-term mission uh, to preach the gospel around uh, Galilee, but to also lay the groundwork for the rest of their lives. We know that the apostles of Christ endured much throughout their ministry, throughout their lives. They were martyrs for the faith. And I think this one chapter, we get insight into Jesus and his preparation for them, the persecution that will come, but the great reward in the end. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to go back to verse 38. I know we looked at verses 38 and 39 last week, but these two verses will help lay the groundwork for the last three verses, 40 through 42. The words of our Savior Jesus Christ, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Rich words from our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this time to listen to you speak through your Son, Jesus Christ, who then is shared with us through the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, these words are profound. They challenge us who are believers who are redeemed and forgiven of our sin, that we have a calling, and it's not easy. But there is a guarantee, a promise, a reward for those who are faithful to Christ, who are faithful to share the gospel. There is even a guarantee that as you go, dear Father, you even show here how that how, how your ministers of the gospel, your preachers of the gospel will be provided for. And so, God, I pray today that you would use this time for your glory, that you would inspire within us exactly how you wish for us to serve your kingdom. I pray, God, that these words would also bring encouragement and comfort to those who are discerning and wrestling with your call in their lives. Lord, you've called us all to be evangelists, to preach the word, whether it be through our own lives or daily living, through relationships, or actually even teaching in an official capacity. Whatever that calling is, Lord, we we want to hear you clearly. And I pray, God, that you would encourage us that we will be rewarded, and those who serve us and our needs will also be rewarded. Use this time, Lord, again for your glory. Be here in this room with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We now come to the end of this, this challenging chapter. Has, has chapter 10 been a challenge for you? Uh, I think the words here are intended to be challenging. 
because Jesus is speaking directly to his 12 because in this way because he knows what they will be facing. They're going to face the same persecution that he does and even more. But they have a calling to go and share the gospel, to preach the word. Chapter 10 has called all of his disciples to preach the gospel, to evangelize, and actually chapter 10 is actually a calling for all Christians to be laborers of the harvest. Remember at the end of chapter 9, verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the groundwork for chapter 10. We are, as Christians, called to this same ministry that these 12 were called to. Yet, this calling is not for the faint of heart. Those who have followed the Lord for any length of time, you understand what Jesus is saying here. This calling to preach the word, to live out the gospel, to share the good news, is not a calling for the faint of heart. It's not a romance novel. It is a hard road. And only the genuine disciple of Christ is going to have the fortitude to endure the response to this calling. The ability to preach boldly yet compassionately can only occur with the presence of our Lord and through His Holy Spirit. We looked at this Wednesday night in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where when Jesus is is giving the great commission to His witnesses, those who witnessed Him ascending into heaven, He tells them, I am giving you power from on high through the Holy Spirit to do this mission that I am calling you to. So that is encouragement to the Christian as you are sharing the gospel, as you are living out this Christian faith. You're not alone. And Jesus here is allowing us to see the truth that you are not alone in this because that is terrifying for those who feel called to the ministry, called to live out the gospel. Oh, Jesus, I can't do this. Exactly. You can't. Apart from the salvation of Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit with you, Christ himself even says in Mark's account of the Great Commission, I will go with you wherever you go. It was generally believed in Hebrew tradition that great suffering would come prior to this coming of the Messiah. And when we look here at verses uh, 38 through 39 of chapter 10, here's what Jesus says. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the point and the conclusion of what he says in verse 34 about not coming to bring peace but a sword. If you remember last week, Jesus is letting everyone know his ministry is a ministry of peace because Jesus is peace. Yet the response to that gospel message is like a, a battle. The response of the fallen world is almost like a warfare. So there is a spiritual battle going on here, but these last verses of 38 and 39, prior to what we're looking at here, helps us see the basis of what Jesus is saying here. When we look at verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Verses 38 through 39 help us set up the, the meaning here of what Jesus is saying. When, when, when someone receives you, they receive me. But when they do so, it's, it's in the, the context here of danger. We know throughout human history at, at wartime, whenever there's a conflict going on, if you give comfort to the enemy, you yourself 
are now in danger. Imagine being part of the fallen world, yet now you're a part of Christ and His kingdom, and there's these messengers, these Christians who come along, and if you receive them into your home, into your life, you could be setting yourself up for the same persecution that they're suffering. Verses 38 through 39, it was generally believed in Hebrew tradition that the great suffering would come prior to the reign of the Messiah. So this idea of suffering is nothing new in the Hebrew tradition. They would have already understood this, that before the Messiah comes, there will be a season of great suffering and persecution. The prophets talked about it. And since the Messiah was thought to be this great military leader, Jesus is pointing out the greater truth to his ministry. Yes, he is the, the he is peace. But his ministry will stir up to strife. The suffering of the righteous disciple of Christ is going to involve great rejection. It's just part of the Christian life. This is why whenever we see on, uh, I hate to even bring it up again, but because we give them so much platform, but we all know what we're talking about. Joel Osteen, um, the, the, the name it and claim it preachers, God is going to bless you. He doesn't want you to suffer. I mean, and it's prevalent in our community. This message in the churches of God does not want you to suffer is unbiblical. It's not that God wants you to suffer. He's just pointing out the truth. You will suffer. (laughs) Period. So the suffering of the righteous disciple, I mean, when when we're faithful to the word, when we're faithful to the ministry of the gospel, we will be involved in great rejection. But these words here, these final verses, verses 40 through 43, or 42, Jesus is ending this teaching here with a hope. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, there will be great persecution. Yet, at the end of all of this, there is also great reward. That's the point we want to see today. The suffering of the righteous disciple who is faithful to Christ will receive an eternal reward. <laughs> and this eternal reward would be much greater and more valuable than the reward of earthly treasure. That's the purpose here. So when you, when you take the words of Christ and you say that God wants to bless you and reward you, He does. Yet when we substitute earthly treasure and monetary gain for the eternal reward that Christ here is speaking of, we have now distorted what Jesus is teaching us. You see the point? The value of the earthly life pales in comparison to the value of the eternal life guaranteed by Christ himself. Jesus tells us that he who loses his life will find it. If you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you're going to find eternal life through Christ. So the words of Jesus here, verses 38 through 39, this sets up the teaching about reward particularly the reward of eternal uh, eternal life, but also the judgment that comes as well. And so verses 40 through 42 here really kind of sets up, Jesus is actually referring to what, what, what theologians now call realized eschatology, if you're taking notes. Some people in this church love those things. Realized eschatology. It's that Jesus speaks of the real presence of the kingdom of heaven now, even amidst the persecution but the not yet future kingdom that's to be fulfilled. That's what he's pointing out here in verses 40 through 42. Let's look here at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Poetic in a way, isn't it? Jesus is pointing air to not just himself. He's pointing to the origin of the whole ministry, the whole calling uh, of, of coming to Christ. It comes from one who sent Christ. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So he's showing th- this step of, of authority, the step of, of, of calling here. These final three verses returns to the theme of, of really hospitality. When you look here at verse 40, it, it's... It's echoing what we saw in verses 11 through 14. As Jesus sends out his 12 apostles, he tells them that wherever town or village you enter, uh, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. He talks about greeting the house that takes care of you, about the worthiness uh, of that house, and you should bring peace upon it. We see here in verses 11 through 14 and actually 40 through 41 that this has always been true. This is echoing something even of the Old Testament prophets. When we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, you don't have to turn it if you want, but if you're taking notes, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is in a, in a battle with the people of Israel. They want a king. Samuel being the prophet, the man of God, is in this battle with the people. So even church battles and struggles was nothing new. The prophets held the same problem, didn't they? And we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, here's what God says to Samuel about this struggle of establishing a king. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So you see what Jesus is saying here in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That is echoing here a a time-honored tradition, even in the prophets. If they reject you, Samuel, it's not you, it's me. Rejecting the message that the apostles would bring is actually rejecting God's will. Likewise, I would say embracing the message that the apostles bring is also embracing God's will. Those who embrace the apostles, and I want to say those who embrace you and me who are Christians, who are messengers of the gospel, those who embrace you, it's not about you. (laughs) They're embracing the message that you've been entrusted with. They're also then embracing Christ. And if they embrace Christ, they're embracing God the Father. It's all connected. Isn't it a joy that we, as the redeemed in Christ, get to participate in that? That's what Jesus is saying here. So embracing the righteous bearer of the gospel is also embracing the author of the gospel. Now that will terrify me, honestly. Dear Lord, you have given me that responsibility? Doesn't that terrify you? Because if you receive the minister, the preacher of the gospel, or or the missionary, or the Christian who is having coffee with you and sharing with you the truth, when you receive what they're saying and you receive them particularly, then you're receiving the Savior, Jesus Christ, and you're also receiving the sender of Jesus, God the Father, all at the same time. So what's the point here in verse 40? Whenever the gospel is shared, whether it be over a cup of coffee, whether it be in a Bible study, whether whatever situation is, even if it's being shared through the preaching of the word from the pulpit, whatever is going on there, whenever the ministry of, of the gospel is expressed, the message of salvation, when it is shared, 
in whatever situation, there's something grander occurring here. It's more than just two people or a group of people connecting over a Bible study or a message. It's God himself at work through his son and through his word. That should humble us for a minute. Amen? Let's look here at verse 41. Continuing the words of Jesus, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. What have we got going on here? The reward that one receives for helping a prophet of God, very evident in the Old Testament. The prophet of God will reward those who accept him and help him, a lot of times with a miracle. We see examples of this in 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elijah is cared for by the widow Zarephath. You remember that story? She gives him cold water, and she gives him a cake of bread made out of the last meal, the cornmeal or the flour, whatever they've got. The last of her food is given to the prophet of God. What happens? They continue, she continues to provide for Elijah's needs, even though she gave up her last. And what eventually happens? The son of this widow becomes ill and dies. And what is the reward? Elijah raises him back to life. Now, does the widow earn this? Yes and no. There is a reward for being faithful. There's a reward for supporting the man of God, the prophet of God. We also see this in 2 Kings chapter 4. Elijah's successor, Elisha, goes through the same experiences that his predecessor does. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha is also encountered with a widow who suddenly finds herself in debt. I mean, back then they didn't have life insurance. And when your husband died, you were destitute, that you had no more provision. And this widow suddenly finds herself with debts from her husband's death. And what does Elisha do? He tells her to go set out these vessels. First he asks her how much oil does she have, the oil to use to cook with. And she goes and sets out these empty vessels per Elisha's orders, and the Oil continues to flow to the point that she has more oil than she can handle and she has enough oil to sell to pay off her debts. Again, Elijah being cared for by a widow, Elisha being cared for by a widow, very similar situation. Then in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, Elisha is a, a very common practice of the day. Prophet says they would travel and preach and, and prophesy and pass judgment. They would come into villages and towns, very much like what Jesus was describing for his apostles in Matthew 10. And everywhere that they would come, it was, if you were a righteous person, you were obligated to care for this man of God. And the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4 she would see Elisha and his his servants and those who helped him. They would come through her village and her town, and, and she was married. She wasn't a widow. Elijah had a husband, but they would also provide. They would always provide food and shelter whenever Elijah would stop. And she talked to her husband in in Second Kings chapter four, and he asked her, and she asked her husband to build an addition to the house. Husbands, anybody have been through that? 
For this purpose, the Shunammite woman, she asked her husband to build an addition to the house for the purpose of giving Elisha a place to stay whenever he would come through their town. And as Elisha, now this this place was built, the, the scripture says it was built on the rooftop. He had his own private room and she would care for him there. And because of her kindness, Elijah asked her how he could reward her. But she was so humble, she said, I need nothing more. So what does Elijah do? He talks to other people. How can I help this woman? And the people told him she was without children. She was of older age, and she and her husband had no children. And so what does Elijah do? He prays. And before too long, the Shunammite woman, she gives birth. She didn't ask for a reward. She actually rejected it. And what does God do through Elisha? Provides a blessing for her. So there's a time-honored tradition of taking care of God's people, particularly taking care of those who are given the task of serving the kingdom, of preaching the word. It goes all the way back to the beginning. So when we look here in Matthew chapter 10, what Jesus is doing with his apostles is actually taking the same tradition of the prophets into the new kingdom here. Matthew's account of Jesus' words, look here in verse 40 and 41. It speaks of two rewards, but I think it also speaks of the same reward. Verse 41 speaks of the prophet's reward and the righteous person's reward. What might be the difference? I don't think there's much. I think there's a lot more similarities here than there are differences. Let's look here at verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. I think that's a clear reference to the biblical record. People who were hearing this would have understood the history and the tradition of caring for the prophets. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. I think what Jesus is saying here in verse 41 is that he sees the kindness of others toward his disciples His kindness done to himself. Then the reward of kindness imparted upon these ministers of the gospel will be kindness imparted upon Christ in his suffering too. And they will be rewarded greatly by Christ himself. They'll be rewarded greatly by the Savior. Jesus rewards the righteous with his righteousness. He rewards them for their loyalty and their dedication. So the receipt of Christ and the message spoken by the disciples is not simply receiving doctrine. It's about receiving the apostles themselves. There's a practical uh, reality that's going on here. When you receive the apostles, when you receive these men of God, in showing kindness to them, you're showing kindness to God himself. God would smell a sweet aroma when you take care of God's people. Just like God smells a sweet aroma of a sweet sacrifice. We see this in Genesis chapter 8. After Noah and his family comes off the ark after the flood, Noah gives a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And Genesis chapter 8 tells us, 8 verse 21, that God received a sweet aroma from that sacrifice. Perhaps the type of reward that Jesus speaks of here, I think is in proportion to the rank of the authority by which one expresses the kindness, maybe. A prophet will return kindness with a miracle, some kind of a spiritual reward. 
But what kind of reward does a righteous person grant? Who's the righteous person? It's a common person who is loyal to God, who is in Christ's righteousness. What do they have to give? They don't really have the, they may, they may not have the power of, of miracles the way a prophet would. So what does that common righteous person have? All they have is loyalty to Christ. And they may not have anything other to give them than meager food and shelter. Maybe that's all. And perhaps all that a righteous person can share, maybe that all they can share is companionship. Maybe that's it. Now, I think that the type of reward that Jesus speaks of here for his disciples is actually practical. It's utilitarian in nature. It's beneficial. Food, shelter, comfort. We may belittle those kind of things, but wow, Jesus is pointing out here the eternal value of that. By our kind actions... What are we showing? We know that the community of Christians brings a greater reward, and by acting kindly to the ministers of the gospel, particularly these 12 who are preaching the word, when they receive kindness, it shows evidence that those who who provide for them and show kindness, that they're part of one body, that they're all servants of Christ, that they're one in Christ. So in this way, we become partakers of the blessings which Christ gives to the members of his body. So what he's showing here in verse 41, the reward of the righteous person, that righteous person rewards the preacher of the gospel with things that may seem insignificant. A meal, a place to sleep, maybe even some money every now and then. What's the reward? You get to share in the kingdom (laughs) as a community. What that shows is maybe, maybe the greatness of this reward is that not one special kind of office between prophet and righteous person is actually important here. It's that all acts of kindness will never be forgotten by God himself. That's the thing that I think Jesus is saying. In other words, acts of kindness that a righteous person exhibits is remembered in the same way that the miraculous acts of a prophet are remembered. I think that's what Jesus is trying to point out here. You see that? We're not less than because we're not a prophet. God will not overlook the kindness to his people. God will not abandon those who care for his messengers of the gospel. He's not going to abandon you. Just like he's not going to abandon the disciples who are preaching. If all that you can do for the kingdom ministry is to show kindness to one who is actually sacrificing for the kingdom... You know, when someone goes and preaches the gospel, when someone goes and evangelizes the world, they're sacrificing family. They're sacrificing wealth. They're sacrificing comfort in many times. They're sacrificing perhaps even their own lives. If all you can do is show kindness to a minister of the gospel, whether they be missionaries, whether they be preachers of the word, whoever it be, I think verse 41 here is comfort to you. Because the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. I think, I mean, Jesus is not mincing words here. There's reward for kindness for his people. Jesus speaks as his Father in heaven would speak. No kindness shown to the laborers of the harvest will go un recognized. Use the words of Christ here. That's amazing. So verse 42, let's take a look here at verse 42. 
And Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The only gift that a poor person could give one of these disciples may only be cold water. Maybe. Remember, uh, you just said that you came from Kenya and you were helping with well water. It's biblical. Maybe the only thing we can do is help a community with well water. But if we are preaching the gospel, if we are serving the kingdom, we are disciples of Christ, we may only receive a cup of cold water for our efforts. The little ones here in verse 42 clearly refers to his disciples. When you look here in verse 42, when he says, gives one of these little ones because he is a disciple. This is not the verse necessarily referring to the children coming to him. This is referring to the disciples that he's sending out. Jesus is using language of an affectionate master teacher talking to these little ones. When these little ones, or perhaps even the little ones, are the insignificant ones who will go and spread the gospel through their acts of kindness and through their lives as Christians too. The world may look at them as insignificant, as little, but they're disciples of Christ. And he says, even if you give them who are insignificant a little bit of water, you're going to be rewarded. These little ones, these new, these, in, these seemingly insignificant or unimportant disciples, they may be the twelve, they may be new believers who are engaging with these apostles for the first time, or they may be lifelong believers whose devoted years of service to the kingdom have grant, have gained no attention. You know, folks who have served Christ faithfully all of their lives with no significant recognition? The church may even look at them as little ones. Yet Christ is saying here, what they have done for me and for my people will not go unnoticed. Amen? That's beautiful. The granting of a cup of cold water is really not insignificant. It may be all that you can give. But think about this. If you are traveling like these apostles, you're dry and hot and dusty from going from one town to another. How precious is a cold cup of water? Even this afternoon, I think as I came into church this morning, my phone blew up with weather warnings of how dangerously hot it's supposed to be this afternoon. Do you all know that? We're not supposed to think for ourselves. Our, tell, our phones tell us how, how we're supposed to stay out of harm's way now, even when the temperature rises. But think about it, this afternoon, if, if you are out doing something, how hot and dry you may become. Oh, how precious a cup of cold water will be. It may seem insignificant, but wow. So think about this. What Jesus is saying here in verse 42. Some may not have grand homes for these traveling ministers of the gospel to stay in. Some may not have a grand place. Some may not even have extra cash to share. But if all that poor person has is cold water, what a rich gift. What a rich gift. It has, it's more than enough. Really what Jesus is saying here, it's not the quantity of kindness that's the point, it's the quality of the heart in the kindness that's the point. Don't ignore the preachers of God's Word. Don't ignore those who are serving the kingdom. If they are sent by Christ, 
They deserve a reward, and you'll share in that with them. Amen? Now, the, the, the Gospels here all make clear that those who refuse to repent when the message of the kingdom is proclaimed will face judgment. Part of what we're seeing here is also a future reward. Jesus is also talking about a future reward. You may not be rewarded in the moment for helping someone and sacrificing for them, but there is an eternal judgment and an eternal reward coming. And the Gospels make it clear, especially in Matthew chapter 3 with John the Baptist, if you refuse to repent when the message of the kingdom is proclaimed, you will face judgment. And Jesus carries the same message into his ministry. It follows that those who believe and obey will also receive a final reward. If there's a judgment, there's also a reward. Yet I think the reward spoken of by Jesus here in verses 40 through 42 do speak of the reward in the moment. I mean, clearly it talks about the reward of friendship, the reward of companionship, the reward of comfort. The true reward, I think, can also be seen as something future and eternal. So let's take a look at this briefly and we'll close with this. The theme of eternal reward in the kingdom of heaven, I mean, it echoes throughout the Gospels. It echoes throughout the words of Christ. So when he's talking about reward here at the end of Matthew chapter 10, he is talking about the practical reward, but I think he's also talking about the greater eternal reward. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 really kind of begins all of this. The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, they convey different aspects of the eternal reward of the, of the Christian. This eternal reward is promised to those who inherit the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, let's flip over there, Matthew chapter 5. If you remember this, because this echoes really what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, this is the end of his list of beatitudes, the blesseds. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Does that not sound like Matthew chapter 10? Absolutely. But what does Jesus say here? In the midst of that persecution, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the reward that Jesus speaks about here in Matthew 10, clearly he's talking also about the eternal reward of heaven. You see that? Now, if you drop down to Matthew chapter 6, there is a contrast. Even though Jesus speaks about reward in heaven, he also brings caution that when you are doing kindness, don't use that as your reward. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus does speak about granting reward and eternal reward, but he also speaks at the same time of cautioning if you think you earn a reward or you deserve a reward, guess what? You're not getting one. You see the truth here? This is important when we talk about sending out missionaries and sending out people to preach the gospel and those who do support them, rightly so. Jesus warns us, do not do your acts of piety for the expectation of being rewarded. If you take care of God's people, if you serve the ministers of the gospel, in other words, and you go around and boast about it, what does Jesus say here in Matthew 6? There is no reward. So when we look at Matthew chapter 10, 
Jesus is making clear that those who are humble, those who are seen as insignificant, who still receive the righteous, the righteous person who comes in, they themselves will be righteous when they receive the gospel and they receive Christ. They will receive a righteous person's reward, not a pious reward. Those who acknowledge Jesus before other men are going to be acknowledged by Jesus to His Father in heaven. We saw that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Giving up one's life for Jesus' sake is frightening, but ultimately it is worth it because whosoever surrenders their lives will find it in Christ, and that is their eternal reward in verse 39. See that? Those who welcome and support prophets, those who welcome and support righteous persons, and those who welcome and support disciples of Christ who trust in Jesus will be rewarded. So what are we looking at here? This end times reward. We're going to wrap this up. When Jesus is speaking here about a reward, I think He's also pointing to an eternal reward at the end times. When we look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus instructs His disciples as they are together in that final supper together. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is pointing to a future kingdom and a future reward. But when we also look at Matthew chapter 13, we see here that evil, that those who are evil and those who are righteous, even though we coexist now, we're not going to coexist forever. At the consummation of the final age, there will be a great judgment and the sheep and the goats will be separated for distance or either, either for a distinct reward or a distinct punishment. Matthew 25. If you want to flip over there, let's take a look at that real quick. Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking about this final judgment or the final reward. He says here in verses 40, those who have cared for fellow Christians who are sick, who are hungry, who are cold or imprisoned will be rewarded with eternal life. Matthew 25, verse 40, and the king turning to those he has separated, the sheep and the goats, he turns to the sheep and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who are the one, who are the least of these? My brothers, the most insignificant Christians that you can imagine. You think that what you have done has gone unnoticed, but at the final judgment, the king will look at you and say, well done. Enter your eternal reward. Because when you have served the other, those, the least of these, when you have served them, when you have given them cold water, when you have fed them when they were hungry, when you took care of them when you were sick, even if you go and visit the imprisoned for my name's sake, you will be rewarded because you did it to me. Amazing. Likewise, there is a judgment, though. Those who fail to care for fellow Christians will face eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, likewise, Jesus says in this future parable, a true uh, prophecy of coming, that those who ignored the least of these, who ignored the brethren, who ignored those who needed help, He will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it. To me. So not only is Jesus speaking about reward, at the same time, automatically, there's also an understanding of judgment. 
Now, I'm not saying this, and I don't think Jesus is saying this in Matthew 10 as a conviction of you better take care of my ministers of the gospel or else. That's not what he's saying. He's just pointing out the reality. You take care of my people, you will be rewarded. You don't take care of my people, there might be judgment coming. So the reward that Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 10, what's he saying? Because this ends a wonderful teaching. When you go and you are faithful to the, uh, the gospel, when you are faithful to the preaching of the word, when you are faithful to live out this salvation that Christ has given you, and others see that, and they come to faith as a result. The reward that Jesus speaks of here is nothing other than eternal life, ultimately. Ultimately. It's described as receiving mercy. This eternal, or this reward is described as mercy. It's described as inheriting the earth. It's described as being satisfied. This reward is described as enjoying the final banquet with the, with the Lamb. It's described as being raised from the dead and seeing God. Believers in Jesus Christ are motivated, I think, to continue to believe and to obey in a wondrous eternal future that is promised to them. Jesus does use this promise of eternal reward here in His ministry to encourage the faithful. It's not to buy their souls, it's not to buy their loyalty, but it is encouragement, isn't it? This is the motivation to support missionaries, to support other ministers of the gospel. We're not only commanded by Christ to care for the needs of the preachers, we are promised a great reward when the genuine sacrifice of ourselves for these laborers of the kingdom are actually provided by us. I'm going to close with this thought. The words of Jesus here in verses 40 through 42 of Matthew 10, they're not only to the disciples here, but they're also to those who may be wrestling with a calling. If God is calling you to go, if you are wrestling with this sense of missions or this sense of preaching or this sense of serving the kingdom in whatever way, it may just be you're wrestling with how do I serve the kingdom when I go off to college? It may be how do I serve the kingdom at my workplace? How do I serve? Maybe God is saying, I want you to sell everything and go. If you're wrestling with this, these words here by Jesus are comforting words for you. Take comfort that your needs will be provided for. Even if that need is just a cup of cold water. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And dear Lord, we thank you that you not only spell out the truth of this journey of the Christian life, this journey of, of preaching the word, this journey of sharing the gospel with others. It is a hard life that you call us to. Yet, oh, is it worth it? There's a great reward. And that reward is the presence of your Son, the very presence of your Holy Spirit, the very comfort that we will stand before you, Father God, in heaven before your throne. And you will be pleased. Dear God, I pray that you would use your word. Use these words of your Son, Jesus Christ, to all, to all who are listening right now. To God, if you are stirring within anyone who is listening 
a specific ministry or a specific calling. And part of their struggle is they don't know how it will happen. They don't know how it could be. They don't know how you will provide for them. It may be that you're calling someone to go somewhere to prepare further. And they're wrestling with, how do I go to be prepared? I don't know how to take care of my family. I don't know how it's going to work. Dear God, I pray that you would use this word to encourage them. Lord, you take care of your people. Even in insignificant ways, it's important. Teach us to be thankful. Teach us to be grateful. Teach us to see the beauty of your hand at work, even in the small things. Dear God, challenge us who are called to serve and to take care of the preachers and the ministers of your gospel. Encourage us that even though we may not be able to write a big check, or we may not be able to host someone in a grand bedroom of our house, perhaps all we can do is come alongside them and encourage and provide companionship. Maybe that's it. Whatever it is, God, you see it, you reward it. You say, thank you, servant, for serving my kingdom. Dear God, use this time for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would use the last couple of months, the last eight to ten weeks here of looking at your calling of your people to be laborers of the harvest. Use this time, Lord, for your glory. Stir up within us that eagerness to work, that eagerness to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.